BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. The hero of Catherine Ma's new novel, The Chinese Groove, is a young man who arrives in San Francisco from the Yunnan province in China. He has little money, few connections, but he does have a love for language, those little phrases that can captivate us in a second language, the idioms and idiosyncrasies of how people talk before it all just melts back into communication. Umbridge, bric-a-brac, humors, crapmobile, bushwhacked. Shelley, as he becomes known, is a delightful narrator of an extremely San Francisco story of immigration, housing insecurity, and chosen family. Ma joins us to talk about the outer sunset and optimism after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Catherine Ma lived a whole other life before she became a writer, a master's in history from Stanford, a JD from Berkeley's law school. But now she's got three books to her name, the celebrated novel The Year She Left Us, a short story collection, all that work and still no boys, and this new novel, The Chinese Groove, set here in San Francisco where she's lived for 30 years. It's rambunctious and fun, defamiliarizing the city and its multicultural residents through the eyes of someone who wants to see the best in this place and is not always disappointed. Thanks so much for joining us this morning, Catherine. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. So why don't we meet this character, Shelley, in whom optimism springs eternal against sometimes the preponderance of the evidence. Uh, some reviewers have called him you know, naive or deluded, but I feel like he knows what's going on and just chooses his delusions. Shelley is a natural-born optimist. I don't, I don't think we see that many of those kinds of characters in fiction. Um, and, and I wanted to introduce a character who was just by nature buoyantly happy. But he also is happy and, and super self-confident, I think, because he has to be. He has to be a survivor. He, he was born into what he calls the despised branch of his family back in Yunnan, China. And there's no one in his corner. His father loves him, is close to him, but his father is is thwarted by his own grief. Shelley's uh, mother has died at, when Shelley was a young a young lad, and um, his father is mired in that in the past and unable to move on. So Shelley has has to be his own champion, and that's how he moves through life with great buoyancy, with optimism. It gets him into all sorts of trouble but it also gives him the resiliency he needs to forge a new path. Yeah. 
let's set up a, the passage that you're going to read, which is sort of he's arrived in San Francisco in this wonderful place, and he is taking his first voyage into this new wonderland. And where is he going and what's happening? Shelley is 18 years old. He and his father have decided that Shelley should finally fulfill his mother's dream for him, which is to uh, leave China, come to America. He has some distant relatives. He calls them Uncle Ted and Aunt Aviva. They're actually uh, distant cousins, and uh, they live in the Outer Sunset District, and he's, he's imposing himself on them. He's trying to worm his way into their lives. They want nothing to do with this young man, but there he is. He's been picked up at the airport by Uncle Ted. We got in Uncle's car, the crapmobile, he called it, though to me it was very nice having four wheels and two axles, and drove to a store so monumental that Good Joe's half-million could have supplied themselves for a year. I realized he'd been making a dry-witted joke about all the stuff being gone in Costco, and I put myself on alert to Uncle's humors. For the next 30 minutes, I scouted the rose and sniffed the air like a hunter, tasting inside my nostrils the perfumes and garden scents of cleansers and refresheners and an elegant scalloped box of something called vaginal tablets. I ate well, too, out of little paper cups handed to me by smiling ladies. After two dozen, I was ready for a meal. Down the aisle, I saw Uncle looking relieved as he crossed off the last item on a list from Auntie Aviva, written in purple ink and dotted with exclamations. He signaled me, and we bushwhacked to the exit. I admit to you now that I was feeling nervous. Uncle, being family, was bound by the rules, the Chinese groove, to play host even to me, the renegade's weevil, but his wife might resent the fact that I'd stuck my flag on their map. I wished that I knew more about her, since the mistress of the house could make things go roughly or smoothly. The real source of my worry? She wasn't Chinese. She was white. The relatives called that American. Mm. That was Catherine Ma reading from her novel, The Chinese Groove, one of the opening scenes set at uh, a Costco. Um, You know, one of the things that I really loved about this book, and I love the way that it moved, is when you're learning another language, you pick up these little idioms, these like kind of sayings and and ways of talking. And this book really is kind of about the poetry of language learning. Like as a the the narrator really has this natural poetry in the way that he he writes, but it's built it's like built out of this collage of Americanisms and Britishisms that he's picked up in his language learning. Yes, Shelley has been learning English in China. He has a language teacher. His mother has this dream for him um, that she wants him to be able to learn English because she thinks that that's going to be his ticket to uh, economic opportunity when he grows up. So he does He does learn English from a, a woman uh, who's British-born, whom he calls Miss Chips, uh, and in, in his hometown of Guizhou in Yunnan province. And Miss Chips's father was a linguist, and Miss Chips loves language, and she passes some of that, mm-hmm. uh, some of that on to her pupil. And it, it was so fun to write Shelley because he loves love language and he loves wordplay. He makes up all sorts of 
funny phrasing of his own. He he makes up the phrase the Chinese groove, and I his voice came to me very easily. Mm. Uh, but I had to rein him in. Sometimes he ran away with me a little bit. <laughs> when, uh, when I was working on this book, because I was writing about the outer sunset, I often worked at the um, library at UCSF on the Parnassus campus. The public is a, or was at that time allowed mm. to work in the Kalmanowitz Library, and I would go in there every day with my little sandwich and my laptop. And and one day, uh, a med student who was in his scrubs came over to my carol and rapped on the edge of it and frowned down at me. And he said, will you stop talking out loud to yourself? (laughs) He was so annoyed with me. And I realized, oh, I was sitting in there doing all the funny voices. It was very embarrassing, oh, but my I didn't blame him for being annoyed. But that was Shelley. He inhabited me from the get-go. From the very earliest uh, attempts I made at starting this novel, I had the voice, and yeah. it was great pleasure to write. And I love I love him, too, performing, too, right? He's performing through this whole book, and it, it really reminded me of an interview I once did with a, a Filipino sailor, you know, who'd been a, a cook on a ship for, for years and years, away from his family nine months at a time. And, you know, I asked him where he was from, and he's been very quiet through the whole time. And then he said, I'm from the Philippines, the Pearl of the Orient. <laughs> you know? And it was like he'd, he'd memorized this little phrase to say, and it was, it was truly amazing. And, I, and I, I know, you know, in Spanish, which I've been trying to relearn, uh, that I have those little, those little tidbits that are so satisfying when you get them down and you know how to deploy them. Um, let's talk a little bit about this uh, concept of the Chinese groove. Um, what, what does it mean to Shelley to be in the Chinese groove? Shelley has this belief that there is a deep connection that runs between countrymen. He calls other Chinese in the diaspora his countrymen. And it's it's both a help, a hope for him and a hazard. The hope is he's 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 leaving his home, he's leaving his family and he's going out into the unknown, and he thinks he has a safety net. He thinks it's okay because other people, my countrymen, will look out for me, and I don't even need to really speak my fears Mm -hmm. or speak my desires. We will be able to communicate with each other at some deep level. It's a belief in these deep cultural and ancestral bonds, but it's a hazard for him because he is relying on it to um, fill in the gaps for him, to make up for the fact that he has no Mm. prospects, he has no job, he has no housing. He's hoping that people are going to lend him a hand. And sometimes that works out for him, but sometimes it doesn't. And what part of his journey is that he has to learn how to communicate for himself. And communication and the ways in which it fails us and the ways in which we learn to make ourselves vulnerable to one another and speak to one another. That's, that's a major theme of the book. Mm. We're talking with Catherine Ma about her new novel, The Chinese Groove. She's going to be at Book Passage in Corte Madera on February 5th in conversation with Vanessa Waugh. We want to hear from you. Does your culture have a groove? These kind of unspoken and complex understandings between people that um, you hope you get right. You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. We want to know, does your culture have this kind of kind of groove? Uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, we're KQED Forum. And the email is forum at kqed.org. I mean, one of the things that struck me about the concept of the Chinese group, though, was a little bit like... Uh, 
I know that you know that I know that you know, and so therefore we can say nothing, right? <laughs> and and there is, you know, you you say one of the themes is learning to speak out loud, but it also feels like one of the themes is like learning other people's grooves, learning what can remain unspoken. Yes, I, you you describe it perfectly, particularly when it comes to families. I think it, it's so ironic to me that with with within our family it may that may be the place where communication often fails us mm-hmm. and there is, family members bring so much expectation and 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 need to the conversation between each other uh, amongst themselves that sometimes and and it can be painful for family members to speak in the book both sets of families, the family in China and the family in San Francisco, are working their way through grief. And so mm-hmm. to talk about their feelings, to really understand where each other is coming from, how they're processing events which have traumatized them, um, is, 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 is a very painful exercise for them. So exactly, they, they think, I don't have to talk to you. I could just be in the room with you, and you must understand how I'm feeling. And as we find out along the way, that doesn't always, that doesn't mm-hmm. always work for these families. They're, they, are, they, are, they very much have a river of sadness running through their lives that they, that they need to learn how to navigate. And that's made a little bit more complex, but also aided at times by all the kind of chosen family arrangements that are here. I mean, you've got this distant second cousin, but you've also got another couple that loses their housing and ends up um, arriving also at the doorstep of uh, Ted and Aviva, uh, the the San Francisco couple. And they've all got to try to navigate the various ways in which they kind of what they can talk about and what is remaining silent. Yeah, the, 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 the another another. Part of the book is how we choose our communities, how we create communities. There's the family unit, and of course there's a major question about how you individuate from a family. How do you stake your own territory with a family? And there's also the intentional communities that we that we create. And Shelley heads out for, for, the, for, for America convinced that he's going to find a better family than the one he left behind, and he has to learn how to create yeah. those bonds. We're talking with Catherine Ma about her new novel, The Chinese Groove, out now. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with the novelist Catherine Ma about her new book, The Chinese Groove. And 
want to hear from you. Does your culture have a groove, this kind of complex, unspoken understanding, or at least hope for understanding, uh, between the people of your culture? You could give us a call, give us an example. We also wonder, you know, if you're an immigrant to the U.S., what were your expectations and experiences of your, you know, people from the same country of origin, your countrymen, uh, countrywomen, helping you out? Um, the number's 866-733-6786. That does happen in this book. Shelly does get some help from various people. The number, again, is 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, we're KQED Forum, and the email is forum at kqed.org. I want to talk a little bit about uh, one of the stories that's kind of embedded in inside this book, which is the kind of migration story of people who first came to Chinatown and then left for other points uh, in the city. In this case, the outer sunset. Yes, I I I consider migration in a in a couple of different ways in the book. Of course, we have Shelley's migration from Yunnan Province to the United States. Um, but there's another kind of migration that really interests me, and that's the movement of people within their own community. So when Shelley comes to live with his relatives, um, a part of that family that's now in in the U.S. or already in the U.S. Uh, has has essentially migrated from San Francisco's Chinatown to the Outer Sunset. And this is a journey that in some ways can be as daunting and complex as a transnational journey. This outer sunset district um, in the mid-20th century was an area that uh, where, where, where working-class families, middle-class families could find housing. Uh, at first, they were kept out by restrictive covenants when that housing was first built in the 20s, 30s, 40s. But eventually, the laws changed first at California state level, then in the federal, the federal laws changed. And these restrictive covenants that said no Jews, no, no Chinese, no blacks, you know, uh, various communities of color were kept out. Those were, those were stricken from the books. And families like um, uh, the, the, the relatives Shelley has, families were permitted to, to, to move there. And Shelley is learning about all those things as he comes to the Outer Sunset. He's disappointed when he gets there. I mean, after all, the Outer Sunset District is the brunt of a lot of jokes in San Francisco. But it has a very special place in my heart because when my parents, when I was born, my parents lived in Levittown mm-hmm. and, and in Pennsylvania. And to me, the Outer Sunset has that same feel of, of uniform housing, cheaply built, and opportunity for families, working-class families, middle-class families, to actually get a foothold in America. Yeah, you know, it's just interesting. What is your sunset kind of look like? What's your outer sunset look like? If you were to kind of draw, draw your map, like where are the points that are on there where you were like, okay, I'm in the outer sunset and this is the thing I love about it. Well, importantly, oh, you mean now, if currently, or you mean in the... Yeah, kind of, I, I, now, I mean, I, or, or or back then, yeah. I, but I, I was thinking yeah. now. Yeah, well, I'll, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll start with, with the book because there is a very important um, uh, uh, lo- location in the outer sunset to this book, which is that... Um, Ted and, Ted and Ted's mother's family had she had been raised in Chinatown, and they leave Chinatown, and they open a small convenience store mm. at the corner of Forty Six and Noriega, and that that was an important location for me. I spent a lot of time just hanging out mm. on that corner, 
have okay i admit it i would have a slice of pizza every now and then pizza <laughs> i think that that's is, okay <laughs> that is um that is a place of uh a, 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 that was in its way a kind of utopia for this family okay we've now moved up we're moving up the economic ladder and we've made it to the outer sunset and we're buying a house in a, in, on a different avenue nearby, and we're putting down roots. Mm. We're we're going to make our own economic opportunities. And I I love the outer sunset. I like, of course, you know, um, for me, uh, just being out on the in the beach and the great beach mm. and being able to take. Well, I mean, what a miracle! What a miracle <laughs> that we live in this city where we have beach so close by. But for me, it's also the the many communities that reside side by side in the outer sunset. And that's reflected in the small businesses and the neighborhood establishments that permeate that neighborhood. That's mm-hmm. where the real heart of the of the feeling is, I think, my feeling for the outer sunset. It's in all the migrant communities, the small businesses, the feel of the neighborhood as you walk block to block. When Shelley first gets there, he's sort of like, wait, I thought my Amer- my American relatives were really rich. He thought they, li- <laughs> they owned a huge department store on the best corner in San Francisco. They were going to set him up with a job and housing. And he's dismayed to find out they live rather modestly. Um, in the foggy avenues, but eventually yeah. he comes to understand the beauty of the place and the beauty of the home and community that's created there. Of course, the irony is that owning two houses in one family in the outer sunset basically does make you globally top one percent wealth in the world, right? He, he I mean, can't. He can't fathom yeah. that. And yeah. and 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 can we? I mean, it's yeah, nuts. Right. It's right, nuts. Right, you know. Right. And and the the family that where he lives, that he's inherited. He, he, his uncle Ted and Aunt Aviva. They say we cannot afford. To le- Ted is very unhappy. He associates the home with a with a trauma that he and his wife have experienced. But um, he said we can't afford to leave this this uh, this small house. He calls it their salt box in the outer sunset. And, and it, it, you know it, it, the logic of of the housing market is turned upside down. And that that's one of the things the book looks at. It looks at affordable housing mm-hmm. and it asks what is housing? What is a home? What does it mean? to have a home and to have a roof over your head. And Shelley bounces from place to place to place uh, after his relatives deny him housing um, until he finally figures out how to make it work for him. Yeah. You know, there is, um, I don't want to give away too much of the plot of the book, but there's an act of gun violence uh, in the book that's very central to, to what comes later. And I've been wondering, you know, we've had two major uh, incidents here in California related to Chinese-American of different communities, Monterey Park and in, in Half Moon Bay. I, just having considered this for this book and been kind of immersed in the holes that uh, gun violence can make in communities and in families, um, where, how are you doing on this? Thank you for asking that. Um, I, I'm shaken by the violence, as are all Californians, I think. And throughout the country, uh, here are two peaceful communities already under prolonged stress from economic hardship and anti-immigrant sentiment. And they are now experiencing the aftermath of horrific violence. So my heart goes out to the people who are living through those terrible events. Um, I, I can't speak for them, but what I am doing is learning a little bit about them. And it's very moving to me to learn about this 
large group of older um, older age ball- ballroom dancers mm-hmm. in Monterey Park and to learn more about the Latino and Asian farm workers in Half Moon Bay. Many of them were also older in age. Um, you know, and I, I've, I've checked myself. I mean, they were there. They've always been there, but but now we're seeing them more fully. Um, and I think the job of the novelist is to make one's characters um, seen more fully, to make them visible to the reader. Um, maybe that that maybe that what is seen more fully is better understood, and and maybe through the novel, we have a way to deepen our humanity toward one another. And this yeah. this novel, the Chinese Groove. It's a celebration of the different ways in which we create community. You referred to that earlier, Alexis. Intentional community is, is part of the book. And um, in times like these, I think we do, we do help each other. We build resilience by helping each other. Yeah. I mean, one of the delightful things about the book, too, is seeing a kind of background level of human diversity that we almost take for granted in the Bay Area. You know, seen through the eyes of someone who's coming from a place where most people have a very similar cultural background, have been there for quite quite some time in many cases. And Shelley arrives in San Francisco and goes, "Oh my God, look at all these different types of people." Yeah, he his his mind is a whirl. He can't believe he he when they leave Costco and they come home and he immediately walks into a New Year's party and he can't believe uh, the mixtures of people and the mixed marriages, which he he really finds confounding. Different people of different races, um, different ethnicities, married to one another, and and what he calls that party pack of kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, confounding, you know, but also hopeful because hopeful. he has a love interest who is. Uh, a white woman. True, true. He does, um, and and hopeful because his father has told him that uh, America is a kind of utopia that a people of all different races and backgrounds live together in perfect harmony. There is a fable that runs throughout the book, which is called the Legend of the Peach Blossom Forest, which is a very famous. An old ancient legend in Chinese folklore, and Shelley and his father think of San Francisco as the ultimate peach blossom forest, a utopia, a Shangri-La, and um, you know, a kind of perfect, harmonious community. And Shelley comes with that expectation, but he also finds out it's not exactly true. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's uh, let's bring in uh, our first caller here. Let's bring in Stephen in Mill Valley to talk about his particular groove. Uh, welcome, Stephen. Oh, thank you, Alexis, and thank you to the author. It's very inspiring to me as a burgeoning young author of uh, in the seventies. Um, <laughs> uh, my culture is uh, from. I come from uh, New Jersey, the Gold Coast of the East Coast. Uh, I just made that. Up. <laughs> listening to um and i uh i've been out here in california for almost 40 years but there's still a lot of aspects of my culture that i bring um now my father was jewish and my mother was irish and so i don't really uh have a particular um culture other than my new jersey culture Mm. and uh, the people i've met out here from new jersey it's interesting i just want to say this one more thing um when I meet people from Pennsylvania, they say I'm from Pennsylvania. I have a good close friend from Pennsylvania. People from Connecticut say, oh, I'm from Connecticut. Or from New York, yeah, I grew up in New York. Um, people from New Jersey say, yeah, I'm, I'm from the East Coast. <laughs> so it's, it's difficult to admit you're a Jerseyan. Yeah. And yeah. 
um, you know, I, I've uh, adapted to the San Francisco culture, which I was reading about before I came out here and been entranced in, you know, the, um, the hate and so on. But mm-hmm. my culture really, I guess, is the counterculture. And that's mm-hmm. who I identify with still, people who are looking to bring about change. Yeah, yeah. Hey, that's a uh, that's beautiful, Stephen. I appreciate that. Two two different grooves, um, really. I you're also making me think about when I went on my like vis- first time I was ever in New Jersey. I walked into like a sandwich shop uh, to get a sandwich with my dad. First first moment, and I said hello. And when the person started talking, I had absolutely no idea what they were saying to me. I was like, that is an accent I have never heard, uh, never having left the West Coast, pretty much. Um, took me a while to adjust to uh, East Coast accents, for sure, and and the speed and pace and, and all the other parts of that group. Um, Catherine Mott, do you uh, yourself identify with the sort of countercultural elements of, of San Francisco? Like, is that part of the draw for you, or is that actually, like, another kind of city within a city of San Francisco that you can appreciate but don't necessarily see yourself as a part of. I love San Francisco. And San Francisco is a, is a kind of character on its own in this book. And I, I think I am drawn to the multicultural aspects of our, of our community. Um, but at, at the same time, I see the ways in which um, we are somewhat confounded by being people of so many different backgrounds and interests and political opinions and how do we live harmoniously. Mm-hmm. I love your comment, Steve. I think you have a lot of Shelley in you, Steve. I, <laughs> I mean, first of all, that you would call New Jersey the Gold Coast. I mean, I'm just in love with that because Shelley loves where he comes from. He's very proud of being Chinese. He has not left China because he's ashamed of his roots. In fact, he, he trumpets his roots to to he to 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 anybody who 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 will listen, but he also understands that economic opportunity lies elsewhere. But you're absolutely right, Steve, that the Chinese groove exists in every in every culture. I think in every aspect of our life. Sometimes it's geographic. Sometimes it it has to do with our uh, our our uh, you know our region, and uh, and there there are all sorts of different ways we create identities for ourselves, and that's one of the things the book tries to interrogate. It's I think it's very confusing to have multiple identities. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am married to a white Jewish man. My children are both Jewish and Quaker. I was raised Quaker. They are Chinese. They are uh, multiracial. It 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 sounds so easy, but it's actually not so easy mm-hmm. to have multiple identities. How uh, how does it sit for them to have these multiple identities and have, you know, grown up in the in the Bay Area? Do you think that's that sat easily for them or were you imagine or do you imagine they've had a, a different set of uh, kind of identity questions? My sense as a parent is that it sat has sat more easily for them than for me. But I, I, I know if I just leave it there, I'll, I'll get into trouble at home. <laughs> You'll get a text message a little uh, bit later. Yeah, yeah, good thing I turned off my phone. I don't want to speak for them. I, I, the reason I say that is I do think there's been a generational shift. Um, for my parents were immigrants from China. They came in the 40s, um, both Chinese. And, you know, I was born into that family. Uh, the later generation, it, it, particularly in my extended family, uh, we've married every which way. Um, and, and so it's more, 
visible. We were talking earlier about making populations more visible. It's more common. It's more visible. And um, I'm, I'm interested in the ways that we both accept it, but also perhaps struggle with it somehow. I come from a really large extended family. We have big family reunions every four years um, that, you know, 200 people show up. And you talk about party pack of kids. Uh, you, you, this family <laughs> covers the gambit. Um, in fact, there was an NPR story done on one of our family reunions a number of years ago, and the title was The Dynasty of Diversity, which oh has become gosh. a hilarious joke <laughs> in my family, I'm sorry to say, because we feel that it both describes us and, and, and maybe and maybe overstates the case a little bit for, for uh, this sort of, um, you know, modern-day picture of the perfect multicultural family. Yeah. Families are a tricky subject, and they're endlessly fascinating to the novelist. Yeah. You know, I mean, we've had a lot of, uh, like, younger millennial and Gen Z novelists on talking about various I identity things. How did you think about transmitting, you know, your particular version? I mean, your family is uh, originally from the Yunnan province, um, just like the characters in this book, although different different hometowns, I understand. Um, how did you see, did you feel like they had to know the language, they had to know the place, they had to, or was, or not? I, f I find that um, in, in understanding one's history, it, it really helps me as a novelist. It, mm -hmm. it, it may not be evident that the history is all there, but it does. It informs everything I do. And, you know, there are various points of origin for this book. Um, and one of, the, one of those points was a trip that I took with my parents to my father's hometown in Yunnan province in 1999. It was the first time that my father had been um, permitted, really, to return to his hometown because he lives very close. His family lived very close to the border of North Vietnam. And even after China reopened to the West, uh, my dad wasn't, wasn't able to, to visit the, the, his hometown for some years. But I went with him on that trip. And it was a profound trip for us because by the time my dad was able to return home, his parents and all his siblings had perished. Wow. But here we were with all of the relatives, the cousins, and we were seated at, um, at, at a sort of table of honor. My parents were seated at a table of honor, and there was an older gentleman sitting next to my father who clearly was part of the family, but no one was speaking to him. Huh. No, one was, no one would talk to him, huh. and I didn't understand um, why he would be there, both within the family and without? Oh, interesting! That one of the, the one of the germs of this, uh, the seeds of this novel. We're talking with Catherine Ma about her new novel, The Chinese Groove. Stay with us. We'll be back right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're joined this morning by Catherine Ma. We're talking about her new novel, The Chinese Groove, set uh, in San Francisco in kind of the, like, 20-teens, right, Catherine? In 2015. 2015. The book is set in 2015. Yes. We would love to hear from you. Does your culture have a groove, you know, which we've been talking about this morning, these kind of understandings that people can have who are from the same place or maybe misunderstandings at times? Um, You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. We also, you know, we this is a great novel about the Outer Sunset and the people who live there. I would love to know if you're from the Outer Sunset or you you know it, like, how have you seen your neighborhood represented? Have you seen it represented uh, before? And what's special about it to you? The number is 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, uh, we're KQED Forum. And the email is forum at kqed.org. Catherine, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, your path. Uh, to becoming a novelist, but also, you know, kind of the the way you grew up, because you actually spent some time in one of the lesser known Levitt towns, uh, right? Uh, Talk to us a little bit about, you know, growing up in kind of the defining, one of the defining American suburban experiences. Yes, I'm totally a suburban child. I, 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 I don't wear that quite as proudly as I wear my San Francisco <laughs> identity, but it is true. It's completely informed who I am. My parents, as I said, um, emigrated uh, from different areas of China and came first to Ohio. They were, they were graduate students at Ohio State University. That's where they met. And my dad worked as an engineer in the steel industry. So we lived in Pennsylvania, and I was... When, I, when they brought me home from the hospital, we were at Levittown, Pennsylvania, and then in various suburbs of Philadelphia. Um, and, you know, when you grow up in that kind of environment um, with, the, with the, all, of the, uh, all of the insecurity that my parents faced as young immigrants who came during who, – who really were forced out of their country by, by war and revolution – um, there are certain expectations on the children of those of those people. I think. I mean, talk about the Chinese groove. I mean, I knew what the expectations of my parents were. They didn't have to say a word. You mm-hmm. know, I was. Uh, my path was to find a very secure way to take care of myself financially and and you know establish myself for my family. So when I began as a working person, I I began as a lawyer and. Um, I, I, but I was always that kid who loved to read. I just the novel was my first and greatest love when I was a, when I was young, and um, I just kind of wondered do it do I have it in me to learn how to write, to learn how to be a fiction writer, to learn how to write a novel, to learn how to do the thing which brought me such great pleasure, mm. and so eventually I did leave my legal career and um, start to become a writer. It took me forever. I mean, <laughs> mm-hmm. I am old now. It is not easy to learn how to write. I was very stubborn about it, maybe in a way sort of like Shelley, like, I can do this. I decided not to go to school for it. I mm-hmm. think it's because I, I had so much schooling by that point 
that I just I You're didn't like, want to go. Another degree, yeah, exactly. Come on. <laughs> that, what a what a waste of money and time. I can do this myself. Well, it turns out it it takes a lot of time, um, and and uh, I was humbled by the process, to be honest. But now I'm so pleased to bring out this novel, The Chinese Groove, into the world. And um, I think if my parents were here, they're gone now. Uh, perhaps they would be proud of me. They were certainly nervous when I announced I was leaving my legal career to try to write a novel. <laughs> uh, does that does anything sound more pie in the sky than that? Yeah. Uh, but I just think the words every here, parent wants to hear. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But by that time, I had a, I had a, a, a life of my own, and I, I, I had established myself enough in the world. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I think of it this way. The legal career was for my mom and dad, and the writing is for me. And I'm lucky. I'm lucky enough that I'm healthy enough and I've lived long enough to be able to do those two things, um, you know, in in series instead of all at once. It'd be pretty darn hard to be a litigator in a downtown San Francisco law firm and write a novel on the side. That's what my mom wanted me to do. She was like, just write in your spare time. And I was like, you just don't have any spare time. <laughs> when you're going to trial and you're raising three kids and, you know, it just doesn't work that way, Mom. Yeah. And um, eventually she was she was sympathetic to it. And I, I think she would be proud of me that I finally brought out this um, this book that celebrates family, yeah. that, that tussles with the um, – tussles with the kinds of conflicts that arise in family, but ultimately celebrates families, whether it's the family you're born into or the family you create for yourself. I would say I find it very inspiring, and I'm sure many other people out there in our listening audience who've put their novel dreams on the shelf while they raise kids and you know put food on the table are thinking, you know, maybe it's time. Maybe it's time for them, listeners, to uh, get the dust those dreams back off. Um, you know, you said you didn't go to school for this, but I have noticed that in your bio, you do talk about being part of a book club called a True to the Mood Book Club for 30 years. And I just have to imagine that whoever was in that book club, which I want to hear about, has had a huge influence on this book. You are exactly right. I have belonged to this book club. We, we named ourselves True to the Mood after a line in E.M. Forster's novel, A Passage to India. We have been reading books together for decades. We, we were so foolish. We, we, nobody thought to write down a list of the books because we didn't know it was going to go on for so long. But we are good friends. And they are a huge part of the reason that I became a writer. They gave me the confidence to think that I could try to do it, and not by not by talking to me about writing, but by talking to me about books and reminding me of what great pleasure I learned I took from reading books, but also what what there is to learn about life in books. Um, and we we meet um, and and we uh, we argue and we debate. Uh, we spend as much time arguing about the next book that we're going to read as we do discussing the book that we just finished. <laughs> but we we have shared. And the incredible thing is, because we have been meeting for so long and reading together, we have now read hundreds of books in common. And what wow. a gift that is to have a common library. No kidding. Uh, I mean, that's really interesting. At this point in our in our existence, we've we've been. To, this is our fortieth year together, actually. So we've read hundreds of books in common, and it's very fun. As we we just finished reading the novel The Silence by Don DeLillo, mm. and 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 we were. Um, 
drawing on all the other books we've read in common that speak to what DeLillo was addressing in that book, the questions he was raising. We have a common inventory, you know, is sort of like walking around with a shared library in your head. My mom was a librarian, and I love libraries. I revere libraries. And in a way, when you're in a book club like that, and you've, 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 um, you've read so many books in common, it's kind of like having a library mm-hmm. with you every time you're with those friends, because you can peruse the shelves together in your mind. My gosh, at what point do you bring your books to the book club. Oh, I, that book club is not allowed to read my... I don't want to hear what... <laughs> I have no interest in hearing what the book club really thinks about my writing. It would melt me if they didn't love it. I wow. think they I think they understand via groove that their job is <laughs> yeah. simply to praise... <laughs> I don't. I don't have to. I don't have to articulate to that that, that to them because I I respect them so much as readers mm-hmm. uh, that yeah I I, I don't want to talk about my own writing with That's them. I barely want to talk about it <laughs> with my family or yeah. my friends. For me, writing a novel is about all the people I don't know, like mm-hmm. reaching readers who whom I don't know. Who who are the people out there? Who, uh, who, with whom I can connect via words on the page. I, I, as a writer, I just love the idea of reaching out into the universe and, and, and our minds meeting someplace. Mm-hmm. Um, not, we're not in person. We're not engaging with each other face to face. I think that's why I go to Kalmanovitz Library and work there. I love working in libraries. I put on my head, apparently I talk to myself in funny voices. <laughs> but it's because you're in the company of people whose minds are at work. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing more interesting to me and, 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 and actually very emotional for me to be around people who are deeply engaged uh, with, with work and with what they love to do. And there's the smell, of course. <laughs> well, awesome. Kalmanowitz is wonderful. Well, in the in, back in the day, I don't know how it is since the pandemic, but it was the one library where you were allowed to bring in a cup of coffee. And uh, I think they took pity on all those nursing and pharmacy <laughs> and medical students. And it's a one, and it has an incredible view. You know how there was all, there was that Burger King in the Presidio that had an incredible view <laughs> of the Golden Gate Bridge. Kalmanova's library is on the hill at Parnassus and has a beautiful view overlooking uh, Golden Gate Park and the De Young Tower and and all of that. I guess that's one thing we were talking about the outer sunset. Mm-hmm. I do. I I need a place. I'd love to hear from a listener. Is there a place in the outer sunset you go for a good view? Mm. The outer sunset is very um, is 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 pretty flat and you know rolls out like a long carpet. Um, where do where do you go to get a good That's view a of good the question. outer sunset? We do have an amazing outer sunset comment from Lauren who writes in. Um, I've lived in the Outer Sunset since 2008 when I opened Andytown Coffee Roasters at 43rd and Lawton in 2014. My friends thought I was crazy because it was, quote, in the middle of nowhere. When we opened our doors, we saw how the Outer Sunset brings together folks from all walks of life and backgrounds. Our communal table would regularly have folks speaking different languages and sharing stories and meeting neighbors. My husband, who's from Ireland, even met a neighbor who he could speak Gaelic with. On our block alone, we have neighbors from at least a dozen different countries. It's amazing to raise my children amongst so many different cultures. And nine years after opening our doors, we're still out here, quote, in the middle of nowhere. And we love 
every second of it. The Outer Sunset welcomes everyone, and I'm so grateful to serve this wonderful neighborhood where I live. I love that. Thank you so much for that. And thank you for the latest Andy Town, which is a wonderful place to fuel up before our walks on the Great Highway. Um, And I think every community, not just San Francisco, I bet you every city out there, every community out there has its outer sunset, has its area that the locals know well, that the locals appreciate, that perhaps is not visible to um, to newcomers to the city, a sort of forgotten quarter of, of that community. But the people who live there know what it is. They have an affection for it. They build their own communities within it. And those are the places that I, I think really ground us as as people living in the modern age. Yeah. Let's let's bring in John, who I believe is born and bred San Francisco and might very well have uh one of those places. I, hey, John. I, I, I am born and bred in the Mission District, but I have a spot in the sunset that, uh, that you can see the Farallone Islands. It's it's a hill in the San Francisco Zoo, uh, <laughs> maybe on the uh, on the west end of the zoo. It rises about uh, 100 feet, and it's the best view of the, on a clear day. You know, the Farallones is, what, 26, I mean, 26 miles from uh, yeah. from shore? And uh, and they're beautiful on a clear day, you know, when when there's no fog, which is rare in the sunset because summertime yeah. is, you know, the foggy time of the year. I also, uh, uh, you know, the, one of the most amazing things is over the last few days, even from Tilden, but definitely from, you know, some of the parks in the East East Bay, you could see all the way to the Sierras. That's how clear it's been. So this is the time to try and get the view uh, that John is, is talking about. Um, Sir John, were you going to say something else? What? Were you going to say something else? Oh, yeah. I was going to say that, you know, this this program, because the first quarter you had is writing a book, a young man writing a book. I'm an old man, and I'm writing a book <laughs> about the Mission District, my my childhood, you know, Irish, mm. Irish and Latino. I grew up an Irish-Mexican. Mission High School was one-third Irish, one-third uh, Mexican, and one-third black. <laughs> and it was a, a, great, a great way to grow up as, as a kid. You know, uh, no racial problems. Uh, all my buddies married Latino girls and had the most beautiful, uh, blue-eyed, tan-skinned children in the world. You know? Yeah, uh, of course. Uh, yeah, John. And, thank and you. I miss that. I miss it because it's not like that now. You know, it's yeah. uh, the, 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 tech, the techies are in there with all their money and uh, ruining the mission district. If you know what I mean. Yeah, John, money, money you, uh, seems to ruin certain yeah. yeah, John, thank you so much. I just want to ask, uh, Catherine, I mean, that is a piece of this this book, right? The money that has flooded into the San Francisco that, that John loves, that, that you love, that many people out there love. And also, you know, this is, hap- this is what has happened in San Francisco time and time again, right? I mean, the city that we loved was built by, by newcomers time and time again, you know? And I've never really known how to, how to hold those two, two thoughts together, you know? It is a great challenge for us, um, and I, I think um, cities are always under pressure and are constantly changing, and it's one of the things that has um, thrown the American relatives off course. They don't really—they um, are, in, in, in a way, of course, they're grappling with personal trauma, but I think they're also grappling with change, and they don't, they don't quite know how to react to it. And it 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 it, it makes um, I think it, it it complicates the story in a way that will be familiar to readers. Mm-hmm. Like how how do we deal with 
change? How do we respond to pressure? Um, and there's a there's a political subplot in the book um, dealing with how a local politician is trying to um, uh, in his public life trying to support um, immigrant businesses, immigrant uh, uh, new newcomers, new businesses, and change, but also um, up to up to no good. And um, you know these things go hand in hand, as you say. We there are there are conflicts present always. There's always that tension, and part of the job of the novelist is to explore some of those tensions yeah. to try to bring them out and ask questions, um, not Catherine, necessarily answer. Anna is answering your call for a good view in the outer oh, sunset thank you. as well. <laughs> Anna in San Francisco, welcome. Hi, good morning. Um, proud of family in the outer sunset. I have two young kids. And we spent a lot of time at our gorgeous Ortega Library. It's a San Francisco Public Library. It's on Ortega and I believe about 40th Avenue. And not only do you get a gorgeous view of you know the ocean and the sunset, but you have the library right there. And there's such a great playground for the kids. Mm. When we're there, we see the view. We get to check out the library. The kids get to play. And it's also a wonderful multicultural spot. There's dancing. The older generation is dancing. The kids are playing. And we just love it. So I encourage you to go visit. And um, anyone with kids is such a special uh, place to be. I love that, Anna. That's perfect. Um, Catherine, that's what you wanted, right? Yes. Thank you for that. <laughs> I And I also... I, 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 I have discovered the Sunset Community Center. I think it's near that where where, where Anna just described um, a wonderful a wonderful place. And I I want to give a shout out to the Chinese Historical Society of America, our our very own museum that um, that preserves the history of the Chinese American in the United States and in particular in our own community. They helped me with this book. They not not they, they don't they may not know it, but they did a wonderful exhibit right at the time I was early when I was working on the book in the early stages called The Chinese in the Sunset. And they talked about this idea, this this uh, phenomenon of, of of Chinese migration from Chinatown into different areas of the city. And um, I went to the uh, exhibit, which was at the Sunset Community Center, and I met a number of people there who lived in the Sunset. And I got to interview people. I got mm. to do some get you know gather some oral histories for the book, and all of that, all of that informed the kind of history I gave my characters. That's beautiful. Last uh, comment. Jed writes in to say, I'm an 80-year-old black American. The deep African-American culture and identity built up since 1619 from ground zero is often acknowledged between strangers with a simple head nod or how you doing. Another kind of groove. We've been talking with Catherine Ma about her novel, The Chinese Groove. You can catch her at Book Passage in Corte Madera on Sunday, February 5th. Thank you so much for joining us, Catherine. Thank you so much. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. 
Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.